G'day, I'm Glenn Davis, and welcome to The Policy Shop, a place where we think about policy choices. It's not my job to care. That's what politicians are for. My job is to carry out government policy. Even if you think it's wrong? Well, almost all government policy is wrong. (laughs) Frightfully well carried out. It's an eternal struggle for governments to ensure the taxpayer gets value for money and that services are delivered effectively and fairly. And in this episode, we're going to dive into the detail about how we might improve public policy in Australia. In particular, we're going to have a look at a proposal for a new model of evidence-based policy. And my guests today are Nicholas Gruen, the CEO of Lateral Economics. Nicholas, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Glenn. And joining us on the phone from New Zealand is Patricia Rogers, Professor of Public Sector Evaluation at the Australia and New Zealand School of Government. Patricia, welcome to the podcast. Hello, Glenn. So I'm keen to think about how we evaluate public policy. Nicholas, before we go to your proposal, can you tell us a bit about the current state of play? What goes on in government to evaluate policy? What goes on is a great many things, and they range from serious attempts to evaluate policy very often after the event to uh, what I would argue is more common, which is evaluation which partakes of the form of evaluation, but in many ways is done with an eye to the institutional imperatives of the organisation itself. But you're saying that evaluation is not really part of the ordinary operating culture. Uh, yes, and it's extremely difficult to mandate that it be so. That's the point. And it's very easy to say, as the Prime Minister says, as the Secretary of the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet say, we have to be evidence-based in our policy. Everyone says that. And there are two problems with that. One is uh, watch the hands, not the gestures, if you like. That One is that that's easily said. The other problem is that being evidence-based is really, really hard. And what tends to displace uh, being evidence-based, being really evidence-based, is either pretty much obviously pretend evidence-based or people who, with great seriousness, will say, we did a randomised control trial, as if that makes something evidence-based. What it does is it puts a an evidence-based protocol in the middle of something. But there's so much more to being evidence-based. If you think, how does a teacher know how to teach well? That's a, that's a big story behind that. And some randomised control trial in Kenya or Alphington or anywhere else is going to be a small part of the evidence that will be needed to be evidence-based in your, in your teaching or anything else. So, Patricia, staying with the current way that we do evaluation, can you say something about your experience in both New Zealand and Australia, given that evidence-based policy has been a mantra for so very long? In some departments and agencies, you have a a range of very good evidence that's really embedded in the way they make decisions um, and they do connect the pieces. But far too often, evaluation is seen as something that you do at the end. It's something that's primarily about ticking the box and compliance. It's, It's about accountability in a very narrow sense. And um, and it's often done too little, too late, and and not really linked into the decision making, or or conversely, it's seen as if there's going to be one answer that will stand for all time to inform the evidence. Over the last ten, twenty, thirty years, what you see is these waves of 
of governments, particularly incoming governments, saying we want to be more evidence-based, we want to find out what works and what doesn't, we want to stop doing what doesn't work, we want to you know, do more of what works and, and learn more. But somehow uh, either the appetite for really confronting when things don't work fades or people realise that it's, it's all much harder than you might think just to find out really what works because fundamentally that's the wrong question. You really need to find out what's working for whom in what ways and what's not working for whom in what ways and in what situations and that's a, a much harder question and not one that's going to be answered in one study. So let's explore Nicholas's big idea in this area. Nicholas, you've proposed the establishment of an evaluator general to ensure that Australian public policy is effective. Can you tell us a bit about this idea? Sure. So the first big idea in that idea is the idea that evaluation like the Australian Bureau of Statistics or Meteorology is is something which is trying to elicit objective information and therefore it should be independent. It shouldn't be uh, at the whim of organisations that are being evaluated. I mean, that's a pretty obvious kind of point. But it's really very important for me to stress that although I've called this the Evaluator General because you have to use the resources of the English language and I am certainly appealing to the uh, to the same set of ideas as is behind the Auditor General. I'm talking about far more than what the Auditor General does. So tell us the difference. The Auditor General sits above a system and it ensures that things are done in a way that is compliant with what it's on about, which is integrity and decision-making. And it comes from a financial control perspective. That's no longer entirely the case, but that by comes from, I mean, historically, that's pretty much where it comes from. With evaluation, one of the critical things is that the voice of people at the bottom of these systems is never really heard. And in fact, what happens is that Senior people, they might be politicians, they might be senior bureaucrats trying to keep the politicians reasonably happy and reasonably safe, will say things which we require them to say. So we go through a kind of public theatre of accountability and we'll say, and the politician might say, we'll get more police on the beat, we'll get more teachers into schools, we'll improve, we'll close the gap, we'll do this, we'll do that. And then Pressures get placed on people further down the system. But if this, if we are to do these kinds of things, if we're to close the gap with Aboriginal people in Australia, for instance, we need to have a system which is learning on the ground in all the places where policy is going on. And a top-down system of accountability won't do that. It will disrupt it. It will disguise. It will be able to produce all kinds of spreadsheets and tables that look like accountability, but we'll be back where we are right now, which is doing the same thing or something slightly different over and over again. So is this the cat that disappears when we try and look at it? Will (laughs) will the effective constant evaluation be that nothing happens? Because being evidence-based is a hard thing to do, it's certainly possible to implement the uh, letter of this law, the, the letter of what I'm talking about, and, and achieve very little. But it's designed to try to support people at the bottom 
people in the field, people all the way through an organization trying to learn. Let me give you an example. In 2000, I'm not sure exactly the dates, but let's say in 2003 or four, a particular state government department administering child protection decided that it would try to reunify children with parents that they'd previously removed because of abuse and neglect. Well, that's easy to talk about in a university paper. You can show that if you could make this happen, it'd be a very good thing. Uh, Well, the success rate of that policy was 30%. 30% of the families reunified were successfully reunified. In fact, while the policy was current, One particular office got that success rate to 85%. Nobody knew in its central office. And when the policy was uh, swept away for the next fad uh, from the top, nobody knew about this. And that group of people who had made the policy work, done the learning, provided the support for the families, identified the right families, that learning was scattered to the winds as various people were promoted and moved. So think of that as what's wrong, and my evaluator general is trying to make that right. Okay, so it's a ground-up program. Very much so. With independence, where a team works with people who've actually been in service delivery to try and evaluate against... Uh, Correct. So in my model, the evaluator general ultimately is responsible for the monitoring and evaluation system of an agency. If the agency says we're protecting children, then the evaluator general will provide some resources to help build a monitoring and evaluation system to help those people deliver that service and to be accountable to themselves to start with. We have to have self-accountability, which is the best sort of accountability to drive all the other kinds of accountability. And so the idea is that they collaborate closely, that they provide expertise, which is very thin on the ground in this sort of area. And if things work well, that close collaboration turns into a seamless chain of accountability all the way to the top. When there is a disagreement between the agency and the evaluator general about evaluation, what the evaluator general says goes. Patricia, you've had a lifetime of expertise in evaluation. Does this sound to you like the sort of change that could make a difference? It has some appeal and some cautions. And and I think part of the issue is about the, the label and and what's meant uh, with that, because you know the, the notion of, of evaluator general, you know, it sounds like an auditor general who who comes in completely separately from outside, and that has both some appeal and some worries, because certainly there's a a problem in evaluation at the moment being totally under the control of the the program management, and very often within government there are a lot of things that never get evaluated. It's the hmm. the little welfare projects. Uh, often a lot of indigenous programs get evaluated yeah. immensely, and the, the mainstream, the where the money is spent, and particularly where the tax system foregoes income, isn't evaluated at all. So I think there's there's something very important there about holding the government as a whole to account. Um, But there is a risk that that would drive out the actual internal systems that that need to be in place. So so Nicholas is trying to frame that as a way of building those internal systems that would include this learning from from experience. And his example of the, the family reunification comes out Time and time again, there were classic stories in evaluation from the 60s and 70s of similar issues where 
across a whole program, on average, it didn't work, but there were pockets of excellence that did and no effort made to learn from them. And you know, this terrible waste of actually being able to improve things by, by learning from and, it. And we can surmise that that has been going on for the last 30-odd years in Aboriginal policy. There were, and yes. I know some of these things. Yes. And are we learning from them? Are we generalising from them? Are we expanding what works? No, not really. When I talk about this publicly, I often talk about the Royal Society in 1660 and its famous uh, motto. Do you remember what it is, Glenn? In Latin, nullius in verba, a fantastic idea, which is accept nothing from anyone's word, put nature to the test. Forget about Aristotle. If Aristotle said that small stones fall more slowly than big stones, check it out. As he did. Check it out. He also said that men have more teeth than women. Maybe he was speaking metaphorically. Who knows? <laughs> so the, my idea is to say about incumbent systems, the way we do things with their unions and senior managers and all the rest of it, they're all essentially vested interests in this system. And to say to them, we will put you to the test alongside these cute little innovative programs and we'll know publicly which ones are working better and why. Well, what, what I would like to, I guess, connect to that is, again, about having a framework to look at the, the gamut of the important things that, that government agencies are doing or ought to be doing. And an alternative suggestion that might be part of this evaluated general or, or might be an alternative way of achieving the same ends would be to have very explicit learning agendas and that the, for each department should be able to identify what are some of the enduring issues that they have to address? So for schools, it's about it could be about attendance for um, justice. It could be about differential incarceration rates between groups. For, for uh, family programs, it could be the issue about how, how do you achieve and support uh, family unification where that's possible? How do you get to that? And so it's, it never comes down to a single evaluation. It never comes down to a single metric that it's actually you actually have a process where you can put different evidence and these different vested interests can can present evidence and you can it can be checked and, and discussed. And so you not only have a system for bringing together different types of evidence, but you have a process of dialogue around it so that you actually get to interrogate it and, and, and draw some interim conclusions about what the state of the situation is, what's causing it, uh, how things are going, what might be done differently, and and how those efforts are going. It, it becomes a an ongoing discussion around a limited number of key priority areas, and that that's quite a different view from this very scattered efforts that we have, where we have evaluations going on and performance indicators and customer satisfaction and all sorts of international literature, not actually being brought together and the different groups involved not being brought together. As you described that, I thought to myself, well, if that happens within a department, the department's senior managers are thinking all the time, what if the minister gets a question in parliament on this? What am I going to... They cannot yeah. any longer, and this is not a moralistic comment. This is simply a comment about the way we are now. They cannot av avoid looking at all of these things with a news management lens. And that is just catastrophic for yeah. knowing anything. I remember I, would, I took real note when 
Uh, Anna Blyer replaced Peter Beattie, a very consensual handover, as I recall. And I went up to Queensland and I was doing some work in innovation and they said, we don't use the expression smart state anymore because Anna Blyer's minders tell her that that's not her brand. Well, you know, that's just catastrophic. I mean, these are things that calling it the smart state was never really a big, I wasn't a big fan of it, but that's fine. That's a marketing thing. But this, these are the sort of PR imperatives of the way government is done at the moment. Now, we can have a long and serious talk about how to address that, but that's the reality that we are having to cope with. And I'm trying to build an institutional house, an institutional place. Uh, I'm thinking of it a little bit like uh, monasteries in the, in the Dark Ages, where knowledge can be protected and, and expanded. Patricia, you mentioned Indigenous programs being heavily evaluated. Why has that evaluation had so little impact on policy formulation? I'm thinking about an evaluation I was involved in a number of years ago of the um, Stronger Families and Communities Strategy that had over 600 projects across Australia and a large number of those were Indigenous projects. And one of the things that we did um, as part of that was exactly the sort of thing Nicholas was talking about. We actually identified which were the projects that seemed to be working particularly well and what could we learn from them. And we went and did um, a number of case studies of those and was really trying to see what were some, were there common features or were they all, all different in different ways and actually did produce a report looking at these factors. And that was used by what was then Faxia to um, look at designing you know, some of the the, the follow-on projects. And Patricia, I would call a success not just producing a report and having some of those recommendations accepted, but starting a whole culture of having people who have some expertise in evaluation helping programs become evidence-based. This is kind of how Toyota revolutionised production on the line. They gave their workers, literally, I'm not, this isn't a figurative statement, 10 times as much training. They trained them in statistical control and they, instead of imposing KPIs on them and running the line faster and faster and trying to get them to keep up, they basically managed to harness the intrinsic motivation of these teams of workers on the line to do as good a job as they could, Mm. as good an evidence-based job as they could. And within about 10 or 15 years, they had doubled labour productivity, doubled labour productivity, not by spending more capital, well, actually more human capital, if you like. So so that's an evidence-based culture. And the difference is massive. Before I chaired the Australian Centre for Social Innovation, I was a bit like Tony Abbott. Well, uh, what I mean by that. Uh, in so I, many I, ways. In so many ways. I was like Tony Abbott in that I was a sort of a tragic liberal. Now, Tony Abbott isn't even a liberal. But what I mean by that is Tony Abbott said the poor will always be with us. Now, I think that's true. But um, that we can do much better in these programs. I thought basically we couldn't, that these were intractable social problems and working at the Centre for Social Innovation showed me most people, 99 point something percent of people want to get a better life and there's something stopping them. And we can Mm. unpick some of this stuff, but we Mm. have to be really empirical and we have to get them to help us and we have to empower people who work with them, not the powerful people at the top of these systems. That's a major part of the problem. So Patricia, you're in New Zealand at the moment doing some work in education there, but uh, interestingly, earlier this year, the New Zealand government turned away from the traditional spend versus cut approach to policy and argued that it would be taking an investment approach. 
which uses evidence to quantify a public policy and then fund the interventions most likely to improve outcomes and therefore reduce, in a sense, future costs to government. It's quite a different way of thinking about it. It does put evaluation into the policy process and asks that it's part of the test. Are you seeing any early evidence of how this is operating in New Zealand? I think it's, from what I can see so far, early days. It's, And I think it's also something we need to be very careful about. It's a great idea. I mean, I think this, this notion that you actually invest in the primary care, the prevention services to avoid a whole list of costs um, in, in all sorts of sectors later on is, you know, makes a lot of sense and I'm, I'm really for it. One of the challenges will be obviously the, the quality of the, the evidence about the costs of those and the costs that are being avoided. And, and while we, there's a lot we can do, again, around the supply of that, I think we also have to be very thoughtful about the demand end, about how we're going to use it because you're not going to get a single figure to be able to say, yes, this is definitely worth spending money on because it won't be that it will work in every in every case. So this is an argument for a much more nuanced view of what evaluation can achieve and doing it at very programmatic level or even lower so that you get a sense of difference. Yes. And I, I have this real sort of visceral reaction when people talk about nuances because it sounds a bit like it's a trivial thing. Mm. Maybe that's not what's intended. But, you know, some some of the examples of where things work differently for different people are really, you know, huge. Um, there's a classic case around it, one of the early intervention programs called Early Head Start that on average worked to actually support toddlers and children in um, disadvantaged families. On some lists of evidence-based programs, you see it listed as, you know, this is something that works and people are encouraged to put money into it. But the evaluation found that for the most disadvantaged families, it was actually harmful. It actually reduced um, all sorts of indicators of well-being and the interactions between parents and children. And so that's a, sort of a case where it's Certainly, it's going beyond the average, but it's something really fundamental that you need to pay attention to. And so, I guess it's it's knowing that each time you slice and dice it, you might see a slightly different pattern. And so, yes, you should take an investment approach and you should base it on the best evidence you've got and you should do a really good risk management approach, but you should always commit to ongoing learning uh, to find the cases where... Uh, it perhaps doesn't work as well or might even be harmful or, or much less cost-effective. Nicholas, in a recent article in The Mandarin, you were quite strident in dismissing the present ways... Strident? That doesn't sound like me. Not at all, but... <laughs> Go on. <laughs> you expressed Go on. strong views, yes. critical of the current ways we do evaluation and, and the current ways we think about policy more generally. Um, you dismissed calls for big data as big data as the way to solve public policy problems, which you described memorably as TED Talk. Uh-huh. Uh, yep. So what are the ways you're looking to see an evaluator general and the findings of this process mm. then feed back mm. into public policy? Mm. Now, Frederick Hayek had a word for this and he called it scientism. And scientism comes from the idea that we can Uh, We want to be scientific the way Isaac Newton was scientific and Albert Einstein was scientific. And so we take some things that look scientific. They might be randomized controlled trials. In economics, it's cost-benefit analysis. And big data is another example of that. Now, not only is there nothing wrong with those things, those things have a very important place in evidence-based policy. But because you can show somebody your flash spreadsheet and say, Minister, here's the cost-benefit analysis on this, when you've glossed over 
all the ways in which we don't know what's working and how it's working. That's the problem and that's why we've spent 20 or 30 years spending, I don't know what it is, but it's um, when I last looked, it was 50 or $60,000 per person in Aboriginal policy getting absolutely nowhere. But of course, all of those programs would have been able to present uh, tables and there would have been KPIs and they would have gone through all the evidence-based shtick, but they actually miss, somehow they miss out because they're role-playing. They're taking hold of trinkets and so on, uh, rather than carefully using evidence in the way that we need to, to understand what we're doing. Nicholas, how could we be sure of achieving transparency in a program like this? Now, transparency is a critical part of this because if we're generating information that one small innovative program works better than the incumbent system, we want there to be pressure on the incumbent system to start absorbing the, the lessons and improving itself or to be displaced by expanding that incumbent system. Remember, the incumbent system has got unions on its side. It's got senior managers on its side. It's got credentials on its side. And so the idea is to try and level the playing field in the public arena. Right now, a little innovative program can be as good as it likes and no one really learns much about it. The opposition doesn't know much about it. They don't know whether they might know that it's kind of quite good, but they don't know whether it's better than the existing system. So transparency is a critical part of this, independence, transparency, and collaboration, so that when we have learning, when we have a system which the evaluator general can put their hand on their heart and say, we're pretty sure this works better than this other system, pressure comes on the system to do something with that information. And at the moment, as Patricia has been telling us, that hasn't been happening for 20 or 30 years. So that's a critical part of it. I think it's very easy to have transparency when things are working. I mean, it's easier, but the harder thing is when you have transparency about when you have evidence that something's not working, yeah, there have been mistakes. That's right. Yeah, and, it's a real challenge. And then it's politics. So you're hoping for a different policy paradigm arising from the discipline that an evaluator general would introduce? Yes. I'm hoping for a policy paradigm which is based on strengthening and resourcing professional craft. If you think about what we did, say, in the 19th century, we had professionals in, well, an early 20th century, we had professionals in healthcare and we had professionals in education and we sort of gave them money and we trusted them. Now, that's far from perfect, as we know, but we want those people to be more accountable than they are. We want them to be as evidence-based as possible. But what we've got at the moment with um, governments making public statements about how they're holding everybody to account in ways that they can't possibly hold to account. We have a chain of legitimation, a chain of governance, if you like, which is dodgy. And so what we're doing is we're sending messages out to the, the to people who know very little about this because we've lost faith in saying, I'll oh, just trust the professionals. Now, I don't have a lot of faith in doing that, but I'm trying to get to some happy medium where if we want to put effort in, we can be confident that the professionals are pursuing evidence-based solutions, but you have to put a fair bit of effort in to know that. So I want to strengthen their ability to do that, resource their ability to do that, and get them to solve the problems as best they can because most, almost all of them want to do that. And at the moment, we've got this 
sort of schizophrenic system where we have people who know nothing about the subject holding other people to account in a kind of a Tower of Babel, which is getting us absolutely nowhere if uh, experience in child protection, Aboriginal welfare and a number of other areas is to be uh, is is to be taken as evidence. I guess one of the big challenges that I see is uh, is expanding who should be involved in using evidence. There are two others that I think we need to also have on the on the table. And one is that they're both about the public, but in different ways. So one is the public as consumers, as customers of particular services, and actually how they engage with their individual doctor or the individual yep, service provider, being engaged in decisions about what to do. Something that might be on average okay isn't, you know, isn't going to work for you or whatever. And the other one is the uh, the public as citizens. And I think that's really difficult in a whole populist um, environment with fake news and silos of information and a lack of democratic discourse and dialogue where people are not accustomed to listening to each other and 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 asking questions to understand. But I think that's where we really need to get to totally so that we agree. can have people involved in it. And that's that's a much harder task. Yeah. I think we have to have that as part of what we're trying to achieve as well. So we've heard about a realist school for testing policy outcomes, and we've got before us a new proposal to create an evaluated general and a culture of evaluation. It's been a great pleasure to speak today with Patricia Rogers, Professor of Public Sector Evaluation at the Australia and New Zealand School of Government. Thank you, Patricia, for joining us on the podcast. Welcome. And Nicholas Gruen, the CEO of Lateral Economics. Nicholas, thank you for taking time to join us on The Policy Show. Thanks very much, Glenn. And thank you for listening. Policy Shop is produced by Owen Hahasi with audio engineering by Gavin Nabar and is recorded at the Horwood Studio at the University of Melbourne. Thanks to the BBC for the use of their clip from Yes Minister. The Policy Shop is produced under Creative Commons, copyright the University of Melbourne 2018.